Well, Happy New Year. We're beginning a new year tomorrow, 2024, and as we begin a new year, one thing that I desire and that I know our entire elder board desires for us in 2024 is for our church to grow and be strengthened grow and be strengthened, not specifically growth in numbers, although we would love growth in numbers because that means that people are getting saved, right? And so we would love, that would be wonderful for our church to grow in numbers, but even more specifically, we desire for spiritual growth to happen in the church. Growth in maturity and strength as we grow in our knowledge of our God and His Word. But how is this done? How is this done? How does a church grow and become mature and become strong? How does a church do that? Well, Paul tells us how that is done in Ephesians chapter 4. And so if you haven't already, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and I will... Begin this morning by reading our passage for us, beginning in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. The Apostle Paul says this, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up. Of itself in love. On Friday, April 29th, 2016, a six story apartment building collapsed in Nairobi, Kenya, and killed 52 people. After this building collapsed, the BBC ran an article that showed five reasons why buildings collapse. And one of the reasons that they found was that developers cut costs by employing unskilled workers who are cheaper than trained builders. In fact, the president of the Nigerian Institute of Structural Engineers, speaking about the reason for the weak buildings there in Nigeria, said this, He said, you find bricklayers and even technicians who are calling themselves engineers. Essentially what he's saying is you have untrained people who are operating in ways that they haven't been equipped to operate. And in many ways this is true within the church as well. Many churches are weak today because of one of two reasons. Either because the members aren't being trained for the work of the ministry, or because the members aren't serving their church with the gifts that Christ has given them. 
And in some cases, it's both of these reasons. But Christ gives gifts to believers in his church so that his church can grow and be built to be a strong church that reflects him. Christ desires a strong church. He desires a mature church. He desires a a unified and a loving church. But how does that happen? How does that happen? How does a church become strong and mature and unified and loving? Well, in our passage here this morning, we're going to see what it is that Christ has done so that his church will be a strong church that will reflect him. Paul lays it out here in Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, and we see first in verses 7 through 11, Paul tells us that there are gifts for the church. Christ has given gifts to the church. Then in verses 12 and 13, Paul gives us the goal for the church. And then finally, in verses 14 through 16, Paul tells us that to attain these goals, there must be growth in the church. So that'll be our outline for us here this morning. First, the gifts of the church. Second, the goal of the church. And then third, the growth of the church. So let's look at our first point here, what we'll call the gifts for the church. Notice what Paul says there in verse 7. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now what Paul is saying here is that Christ is the gift giver. Christ is the one who gives gifts to his church and he's given gifts to every single believer in the church. Now you might ask, well, I thought it was the Holy Spirit who gives gifts to the church. Is it the Holy Spirit who gives gifts to the church, or is it Christ who gives gifts to the church? Answer, yes. Yes. In fact, F.F. Bruce explains it this way. He says, there is, of course, no essential contradiction in this. The Holy Spirit himself is given by the exalted Christ to his church, and so the gifts of the Spirit may also be thought of as gifts of the exalted Christ. These are gifts that are given to the church by Christ. Notice what Paul says there in verse 7. He says, but to each one. That is, every single believer has been given a gift from the Lord. Now, in in the previous verses, in verses 4 through 6, Paul has told us that the church is one. He's talking about the whole church, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And while we are all united as one body, as a whole church, under one Lord, there is also diversity within the body of Christ. As Christ has given each one of us a unique gift, spiritual gift. That's why Paul says there, but to each one. One. I like to think of it like a a puzzle. Every single one of those pieces is different and unique. But when they are all put together in their proper place, then the picture is revealed. And that's how the church is to be as well. We are all one in Christ. And yet we are uniquely gifted by Christ in order to serve the church and build up the body. And as we all use our gifts together, we then become a picture of Christ. What Paul is telling us here is that each one of us is uniquely gifted. And think about how unproductive the church would be if everyone had the same gift. If every single person had the same gift, if everyone was a teacher, we would all be fighting for this pulpit every Sunday morning. If everyone had the gift of service, then no one would be in the pulpit on Sunday morning. 
Everything would be set up really nice and neat and ready to worship the Lord and we would all sit there and there would be no one to lead in worship. We'd be sitting in a, in a nice set up building because everybody would be workers doing their job, serving, getting it all ready to go. But the reality is that Christ didn't give every single person the same gift. In fact, Paul says to each one of us, grace was given. Notice he says that there in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given. What does Paul mean by this grace here? Well, what is grace? Grace is something that you get that you don't deserve. Something that you get that you don't deserve. Christ gives us gifts that we don't deserve. It's all by His grace. Just like we didn't earn our salvation, we don't earn our spiritual gifts either. It's given to us by Christ's grace. And He gives these gifts as He wills. It's up to Him to give the gifts as He wills. And not only does he give the gifts, but he also enables every believer then to use that gift for ministry by his grace. He chooses the gifts to give, and he enables each believer to use that gift for the building up of the body of Christ. In fact, Paul here in speaking about grace is not specifically speaking of the gift itself, although that is implied, but he's talking about our enablement, or we could say the power or the strength to use that gift that Christ has given to us. Now, how do we know that Christ is, or that, that this grace here has to do with the enablement of the gift? Well, because Paul says at the end of verse 7, notice what he says there, that grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ not only gives us gifts to use for the edification and strength and building up of the church, but he also gives us whatever grace is necessary to use those gifts within the church. For Christmas, I received a three-pack of flashlights. Every man likes to get some flashlights. And what was great about this gift is that usually you'll get a flashlight and it doesn't come with the batteries. Now I've got to go find batteries to put in that flashlight. But with this pack, it came with the batteries. It's nice. You get to open it up, and it's all right there for you. I don't have to go looking for batteries myself. And in a similar way, that is what Paul is saying here. Not only does Christ give you the gift, but he also gives you the strength or the enablement then to use that gift in the body of Christ for the building up of the church. He enables you. He strengthens you so that Christ's church might be able to grow. Now, since Christ gives these gifts as he wills according to the measure that he has chosen, that means that we are not to be jealous of the gifts that God has graciously given to other believers. Why are we not to be jealous? Well, what will that do? It will begin to cause division within the church all of a sudden we're jealous of a gift that a brother or sister has been given in christ and we desire that we want that what's going to happen bitterness anger jealousy toward them it's going to cause division within the body of christ but instead of being jealous we're to be thankful for and faithful with the gifts that christ has given to each one of us and we're to use that gift in the church for his glory. In fact, Paul says in Romans 12, 6, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. We're to exercise those gifts accordingly. We have gifts that differ. 
But we're to use the gift that we have been given accordingly, and we are to use them to strengthen Christ's church. And so here in verse 7, Paul establishes that Christ has given gifts to the church. And Paul goes on here to tell us that Christ did so on the basis of his authority as the conquering king. Notice what Paul says there in verse 8. He says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What is Paul doing here? Why why does he say this here? Well, Paul is quoting Psalm 68 verse 18 here. And the picture in Psalm 68 is of God leading Israel through the wilderness after the exodus and then to Mount Zion. And in that psalm, God is seen as the conquering king who takes his enemies as captives and then gives their spoils to his people. He goes and defeats his enemies and then he takes their spoils and he gives them to his people, which is exactly what a king would do. A king would go and conquer the enemy, take their spoils, and then give it to his people. That's the picture here. That's what comes to Paul's mind here, Psalm 68. That Christ is the conquering king, and he receives gifts from the people. And he gives them then to his own people. And so Paul takes this psalm, and he applies it to Christ as the one who has all, all power and all authority and the right as the king to give gifts to whomever he wills. Because he is the conquering king. And then Paul says in verse 9, notice what he says there. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. This here is essentially what we would call a parenthetical phrase. In some of your Bibles, you'll see brackets that are around there. This is a parenthetical phrase. What does Paul mean by this? There's been a lot of debate about these verses here. A lot of debate. But let me just simplify this here for you. When Christ descended, where did Christ descend to? Earth. He descended to the earth. We just celebrated that, right? Last week, the incarnation. That Christ came from heaven... He took upon himself flesh and he came to earth and he was laid in a manger. Came to earth. Which I believe is a a better interpretation there of verse 9. In fact, the, the Net Bible translates it this way, that he also descended to the lower regions, namely the earth. That's how they translate the Greek there. To the lower regions. Specifically, he'll tell you what the lower regions are. Paul says the earth. That Christ humbled himself by coming to dwell on earth with sinners. But he didn't stay here. What did he do? Died on a cross, rose again on the third day, and after that he what? He ascended. He went back to heaven. He ascended to heaven as the apostles saw him go in Acts 1.9. And what Paul is doing here is essentially arguing that Christ is the conquering king who humbled himself by coming to earth to serve us. Then he died, but he burst forth from the grave and ascended to heaven, and now he reigns as the conquering king. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. In fact, notice at the end of verse 10, he says, so that he might fill all things. What does this mean? Simply that he has all power and all authority as the sovereign ruler of the universe and therefore fills all things. In fact, there's another explanation of this back in chapter 1. 
in verse 20 where Paul says this, which he brought about in Christ when he, the Father, God, raised him from the dead and seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age uh, in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under Christ's feet, under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What's he saying there? Saying Christ has all authority. Everything is in subjection to Christ, is under his feet. He has all power, all rule, all authority. In fact, isn't that what he told his disciples in the Great Commission? All authority where? In heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has it all. And so what has he done as the king, as the sovereign ruler of the entire universe? Well, he's empowered his church to go and minister with the gifts that he's given to the church so that they might be his workers and messengers. He's given gifts to us so that we might use them here in the church to build one another up. And because he is the conquering king, he has the right to give gifts to whomever he wants to, right? Whoever he wants to. And so with that authority, he can give gifts to whomever he wants. And he has the right to give whatever measure of the gifts that he desires to give to whomever he wants. Because he's sovereign. He's the king. He's the head of the church. And therefore, we can't complain to God about wanting to be an engineer if God has made us a bricklayer. We can't complain about wanting a gift that someone else has. If God has called you to be a bricklayer, that is an important gift, and He wants you to be faithful in that. With whatever gift He's given you. But along with giving gifts to all believers, Christ has also chosen specific men in the church to give gifts to so that his church would be strengthened and grow. Not only does he give gifts to each one or every single believer, as verse 7 says, but he also gives gifts to certain men that he chooses in his church. In fact, notice what Paul says there in verse 11. He says, and he, meaning Christ, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Notice Paul went from from each one in verse 7 now to some. Meaning he's narrowing this down to certain men. To certain men in the church. There are certain gifted men that Christ has given to the church as a whole, who function as leaders in the church. And while it it might look like there are five groups of men here, there are actually four. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. I'll explain pastor-teacher here in a moment. But notice first here that Christ gave some as apostles. He gave some as apostles, who were apostles. Well, apostles are men who were chosen by Christ and were foundational in establishing the early church. These are the twelve. We know them as the twelve. Plus Matthias, after Judas died, after he committed suicide. And then we also have the apostle Paul, who was an apostle to the Gentiles. These are men who saw the risen Christ and who were specifically chosen by Christ in the foundation of the church. In fact, that the word apostle there means simply means sent out one. That is, they were sent by Christ himself to go out and establish the church. They received direct revelation from Christ 
from God himself, and they were foundational in the writing of the New Testament. That's the apostles. But this office has ceased. We no longer have apostles in the church today. The apostolic age is over. It ended when the last apostle died, the apostle John. We no longer have apostles in the church. But Christ gave apostles in the foundation of the church. And not only apostles, but he also gave prophets. He says there he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. Who were these prophets? These are men who were appointed by God as spokesmen for God. They accompanied the apostles in establishing the teaching of the church, and sometimes they even received direct revelation from God. When it says prophets here, it's not specifically talking about the Old Testament prophets, but it's talking about prophets who were around with the apostles and the foundation of the church. There were, apost- or there were apostles, there were prophets who received direct revelation from God in the early church. And why would they receive direct revelation from God? Because they didn't have what? The New Testament. They didn't have the closed canon. They didn't have the scriptures like you and I have today to go and study them and to turn to. They were being written during this time by the apostles. Now, prophets have often been understood as those who tell the future. Typically, when we think of something that's prophetic, we always think of something in the future. But that's not specifically what a a prophet did. Sure, there were prophets who would tell the future, but that's not all that they did. It's not the full understanding of a prophet. Sometimes a prophet did tell the future, but their main ministry was to serve alongside the the apostles to help build up the local churches by proclaiming the word of God to those churches. In fact, that's what the word prophet means. The word prophet simply means a person inspired to proclaim or reveal divine, a divine will or purpose. The, the verb form for prophet, propheteia, means to speak or proclaim publicly. That's all that a prophet did was they spoke the word of God. Whether it was direct revelation from God or whether it was something that was already revealed by God, their job was to proclaim the word of God to God's people. It's a prophet. That's what a prophet did. They communicated this to the church. They communicated either something that was newly revealed to them by God or something that was already revealed by God. But their job was to communicate that to the church, to teach that to the church. But this office here has ceased as well. Since we have the completed canon, we don't have anyone who is receiving direct revelation from God. We no longer have prophets who are getting a word from God. If somebody ever comes to you and says, I got a word from God, open your Bible. It better line up. You better be quoting Scripture. Because no one is receiving direct revelation from God. The revelation that we have is found right here in the pages of Scripture. We have the closed canon. The foundation has been laid. The foundation has been set. In fact, Paul even tells us this in Ephesians 2.20, that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's the foundation. It's been established. We've been talking about this even as we've been studying 1 Peter. Christ is that chief cornerstone. But the apostles and the prophets are the foundation that is laid there in the establishing of the church. So you have apostles and prophets but who, who were foundational in founding the church and laying the foundation for the church, but we no longer have apostles and prophets today. So what gifted men are left for the church then? 
Well, today we have evangelists and pastor teachers. Evangelists and pastor teachers. Evangelists are those who are gifted with the proclamation of the gospel. In the New Testament, we see Philip. Philip, who was an evangelist. Paul even told Timothy that he had an evangelistic ministry and that he was to perform his evangelistic ministry in 2 Timothy 4.5. Paul says, fulfill that ministry as an evangelist. Usually when we think of an evangelist today, we think of someone out on the road traveling from town to town preaching the gospel in a tent that they've set up, like the Billy Grahams, right? That's typically what we think of when we, when we think of an evangelist, a, a Billy Graham type. And while evangelists can do this, these gifted men, these evangelists, are also needed in the local church. Evangelists are needed in the local church. We shouldn't just send these men away from the church to go on missions trips. They're needed right here in our own churches to be used where that local church is to go and proclaim the gospel and say, hey, now look, I know of a local church where you can come to where you're going to be fed and you're going to grow in your knowledge and understanding of God's word after they've proclaimed the gospel to them. We need evangelists in the local church who will preach the gospel to the lost and bring converted believers into the church where they can be edified. And Paul tells us here that Christ has given to the church evangelists. Then there's a fourth gift here. The fourth gifted man is the pastor-teacher. Pastor is the Greek word poimen, and it means shepherd. A shepherd. That is, he is one who leads, protects, and cares for the flock. To lead, feed, and protect. That's the job of the shepherd. But notice he also has the function in the church of a teacher as well. He's to be a teacher. In fact, the Greek construction here shows that this is one office that overlaps as a pastor and a teacher. That's why we'd say is there, oh, it's a pastor-teacher. We could say it this way. These are pastors, that is, those who teach. Or pastors, in particular, those who teach the Word. You see, All pastors or elders are to be teachers. All pastors, all elders, those two words are used interchangeably, all pastors and elders are to be teachers. In fact, that's one of the qualifications of an elder. They must be able to teach. But not all teachers are pastors. Not all teachers are pastors. There are those who have the gift of teaching, but they aren't responsible for shepherding the sheep. We see this often in our seminaries today, where men will go off to seminary, and there is someone who is gifted with teaching the Word of God. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that man, that professor that is there teaching with the gift of teaching is called to be a shepherd in the local church. But all pastors must be teachers. All pastors must be teachers. One One commentator says, all pastors teach, but not all teachers are also pastors. And so Paul saying teachers here is an explanation for these pastors. It's explanatory. It's telling us these are men who function as pastor teachers. Those who shepherd the sheep, those who shepherd the church of Christ, and they also function as teachers to teach the word of God. 
And if you notice with all of these gifted men in the church, all of these gifts have to do with teaching. All of them. Apostles, did they teach? They did. Prophets, did they teach? Yes, they did. Evangelists, do they teach? They do. They teach the gospel. And pastor teachers. It all has to do with teaching. They're teachers in the church whom God uses to proclaim his word and to teach others. But we might ask, why? Why would God choose men like this for the church? Well, because Christ has a a goal for his church, which leads to our second point here this morning. Point number two, what we'll call the goal of the church. Not only do we have gifts in the church, but there is a goal for the church. Look at verse 12. Notice what, what Paul says there. He says, For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up the body of Christ. Notice the progression there in verse 12. You have equipping for service to building up. There's a progression there. Equipping for service to building up. Oftentimes people think that the pastor is hired in the church to do all of the work. We hire him, we pay our tithes, we give to the church so that he can do all of the work in the church. He's seen as a a hired servant. We call these kind of churches spectator churches. Spectator churches, where the people just show up on Sunday. They're just a bunch of spectators. They show up with coffee in hand. They sit there. They watch the pastor do all the this, this stuff that they, they paid him to do. And they just spectate. They watch. They go home after a good service, and they show up again the following week and do it all over. But Christ did not call his people and save them to be spectators. He didn't save us to be spectators. He called us to be servants, to be equipped for work. And whose job is it to equip the saints? The gifted men, the evangelists and pastor teachers in the church. It's their job to equip the saints. They are to lead you to Christ and then equip you and care for you and to teach you so that you will be equipped to serve the church with the gifts that Christ has given you. And this then works to the ultimate goal of being built up so that Christ's church might be strong. That's the ultimate goal, being built up. Notice Paul tells us there at the end of verse 12, to the building up of the body of Christ. That's the ultimate goal for the church, to be built up. The Greek word there for building up literally means building of a house, and it was used figuratively of construction, building. The goal is for the church to be built up, to be a strong church. And notice, it does not say there that he gave evangelists and pastor teachers to build up the church. It doesn't say that. Notice what it says there. He gave evangelists and pastor teachers to do what? To equip the saints. To equip the saints. As every believer is equipped and uses his or her spiritual gift to serve the church, then the church is built up. That's how we meet the ultimate goal. How long do we do this? Do we just do this for a year? 2024, that's it. Then 2025 comes and we're done with this. Is that what it says there? No. Notice. Until the ultimate goal of being built up is met. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We have to continue to do this year after year after year after year 
evangelists and pastor teachers equipping the saints for the work of the service so that the body of Christ might be built up. And in this verse here, Paul lays out three different aspects of what it means to be built up. The first aspect there is that we are to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, notice what he says there, to attain to the unity of the faith. That faith here is not each individual person's belief. That's not what he's talking about here. But this is the faith. What is the faith? The faith is doctrine. It's teaching that we collectively as a church stand on. This is the faith. What is taught from the word of God. That's the faith. We're to stand upon the truth. Think about the the divisions that happen in churches because of doctrinal differences. There's a lot of division that happens in churches because of doctrinal differences. But as the goal is to be a strong church, a church that is built up must have doctrinal unity. The church must be established and grounded in the truth, in the faith. And one that is striving to attain the knowledge of Christ. This is a church that's growing in a deeper relationship with Christ. This is personally knowing Christ. Let me ask you, how is your relationship with Christ? coming to know him more in a greater way it's personally knowing Christ as you spend time with him in prayer growing your knowledge of him through the study of his word we're to strive for the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of Christ as we are striving for this ultimate goal of being built up Then there's a second aspect to reach the ultimate goal of being built up. And that's in the second half of verse 13. Paul says that we also strive to be mature, to a mature man. Paul knows that if the goal is to be built up as the body of Christ, we must grow in spiritual maturity. This this here... What Paul is speaking about, too, is is not talking specifically about each individual person within the church, but as a whole, collectively as a church, that the church together is growing into a mature man. It's the process of sanctification in the church. That we must be a sanctified church. That faith, Bible church, must be a sanctified church. But how does that happen? It begins where? With each one individually. That's where it begins. And as each one of us is individually being sanctified, guess what's happening to the whole church? Now the whole church is growing into a mature man, being sanctified. goal is to be a mature church so that we can be built up and grow and be a strong church that reflects Christ. That's the goal. Then there's a a third aspect though to reaching this goal of being built up that's found at the end of verse 13. It says to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What does Paul mean by this? We could simply say that it's this. It's Christ-likeness. It's Christ-likeness. It's conformity to the image of Christ, which is what we have been saved for, right? We have been saved so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. I love what Howard Hendricks says. Listen to what Howard Hendricks says. Said He said this, the Bible was not written to satisfy your curiosity, 
but to make you conform to Christ's image. Not to make you a smarter sinner, but to make you like the Savior. Not to fill your head with the collection of biblical facts, but to transform your life. I love that. That's what it's all about. To be conformed to the image of Christ. That's how we reach the goal of being built up. As we're striving for that, that goal, we reach it by, by growing in doctrine, in our relationship with Christ, in our spiritual maturity, and in being more like Christ. And in order then to be built up as a strong church, we must be a growing church because a strong church is a growing church, which leads to our third and final point here this morning. It's in the church. Look at verse 14. Notice what Paul says there. He says, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. What does growth in the church look like? Paul begins by telling us here that a growing church is a church that has stable members. A growing church is a church that has stable members. As Paul describes for us here what the stable member looks like, he does so from a negative perspective, viewing this from the perspective of being deceived. Notice what he says here. He says that a, a church that continues to mature, a church that is, that is being built up, won't be childlike. They won't be stuck on the milk. But they'll grow up so that they're able to feed on the meat of God's word. In fact, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5.12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. What is he saying there? You're acting like a bunch of little children. Stop it. Grow up. He goes on and he says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature. He's saying there, that's where the church needs to be. Don't stay infants. Don't stay children. Grow. Feed on the meat. Grow in your knowledge of God's word. And as you grow in your knowledge of his word, you're come, you will grow in your knowledge of him. Because he's the one who penned it for us. A stable member is one who is eating the spiritual meat and growing in sanctification and in discernment. Now, what do immature children look like in the church? Paul says here that they are tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. Tossed here and there. That is, they go to every single YouTube page out there of all these different so-called Bible teachers that are teaching the Bible on YouTube, and they'll go from this one to that one to this one to that one, and they have no clue what they should believe. They believe all of them. Tossed around, here and there, going every which way. I remember as a new believer in the charismatic church, this was me. This was me. There wasn't sound doctrine that was taught there in the church that I was saved in. Therefore, there were no roots. There was no grounding, no stability. And so I was tossed around all over the place, not knowing what I should believe. Believing all kinds of things that I heard from a lot of different people. But it was because of faithful teachers that I was able to get grounded and to be stable in the faith. That's what I needed. I needed faithful teachers in my life. 
And this is what is needed in the church in order for it to be strong. It needs stable members who aren't tossed around by every wind of doctrine. Then in verse 15, Paul goes from a negative perspective now to a positive perspective. Positively, a growing church has truth-speaking members. Not only stable members, but truth-speaking members. Look at verse 15, notice what he says there. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. As you learn the truth, you then begin to speak the truth to one another in love. You begin to edify one another and help each other grow spiritually by your words, by the truth that you speak. But think about this. Is speaking the truth in love always easy to do? It's not. It's not. It can be hard to do. But as you continue to mature and grow, it becomes easier to speak the truth in love. And it becomes easier to receive the truth from a brother or sister as they come to you in love. Because it's a mature believer who will say, yes, brother, come to me. Yes, brother, I need to hear it. Please speak into my life. It's a mature believer that does that. That says, I don't know it all. I need more. Feed me, help me. I desire to grow. That's a mature believer. And then it'll be the mature believer who will come in love, speaking the truth. Not desiring to have confrontation and division over it, but in love, desiring their best. And as that happens within the church, the church grows. It becomes a strong church. We speak the truth in love. And so a strong, growing church not only has stable members and truth-speaking members, but it also has unified members. Look at verse 16 from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. They are, notice they are fitted and held together. And the imagery that Paul has here is that of, of large stones. Each joint is fitted together. In those days, they didn't have mortar like we have with our bricks today. But each stone had to be cut just perfectly to fit tightly together so that the building wouldn't collapse. That's, that's the picture here. That's what Paul is saying that Christ does in his church. He doesn't just randomly throw just a bunch of people together. He places and he gifts each person in his body so that collectively they fit close together and grow together. Then, as they're fit together and they're close with one another, they're a strong church. A strong church. Each one of us is to selflessly use our gifts that Christ has given us in his church. And as we do that, we'll be built up, be a strong and unified church. But this doesn't happen if each person selfishly does his or, or her own thing. Or if each person neglects the church. Not being fit together with the rest of the body. If that happens, the church won't be strong. Because people are neglecting. Brothers and sisters not to neglect one another. We're to use the spiritual gifts that we've been given to help each other grow, to be built up, to be strong. And so a strong church 
not only as stable members and true speaking members and unified members, but it also has loving members. Look at the end of verse 16. Notice what he says there. Causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. Notice what he says here. In what? In love. In love. All of this happens in the context of love. The way that the church grows and continues to be strengthened is by the love that each person has for one another. It's by the love that we have for one another. Yes, the church must be stable and true speaking and unified, but it all happens in the context or the atmosphere of love as we love one another, as we care for each other. You see, a loveless church cannot grow. A loveless church cannot grow. And Christ does not like a loveless church. In fact, Christ told the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2.4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You've left your first love. And if you're not loving Christ, are you going to be loving his people? strong growing church is a church that has love love for the people in the church and love for the people outside of the church a loving church but most importantly love for the lord of the church that's what we must have in closing here i want to draw your attention to verse 15 if you'll notice i skipped over a portion of that verse because i want to end with us looking at the second part of this verse. Notice what Paul says again in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, notice he says, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. It means that as the church practices the gifts that Christ has given and grows in stability and in truth and in unity and in love, what is the ultimate goal? To grow up into who? into Christ, to grow up into Christ, which means that we will look like Christ. The church will look like Christ. We are to reflect Christ, both inside of these walls and outside of these walls. We're to be a church that reflects Christ. He's the head of his body. We must reflect him which means the church walks in obedience. The church is submitted completely to the will of Christ, just as Christ completely submitted himself to the Father, right? Isn't that what he did? That's how we reflect Christ. That's what we're called to do as Christ's church. He is the head, and as the church grows, with each person in the church doing his or her part, using the gift that Christ has given you, we will look more and more like Christ. What does a strong, healthy, and growing church look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like Christ. It looks like Christ. And we all have a part to play in this. Every one of us has a part to play in this. As we continue to grow this next year, may each one of us use the gifts that God has given us to mature as believers in Christ. Grow stronger together as a church. And may the world look at Faith Bible Church and say, that is a church that looks like Christ. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for the work that you have done in our lives. Thank you for saving us. And then giving each one of us spiritual gift, <coughs> empowering us by your spirit to go and use that gift in this world to reflect Christ. Father, we thank you for the work that you have done here in our church in 2023. Father, you have done amazing work. And it's all by 
your grace, by your enablement, by your power, by your spirit. Father, we pray that as we move into 2024, that we would be a church that continues to grow, to be strengthened, to be those who would feed upon the meat of your word, that we would come to know you in a greater way, and that we would reflect Christ in all that we do and say. Father, we pray for anyone who's here this morning who is not a part of your church. Pray that you would draw them to yourself. That they would repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And be a part of your church with the spiritual gift to be used to edify the saints. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ here at Faith Bible Church for the gifts that you've given to them and for how they have used and continue to use the gifts that you've given them to edify me and to edify one another. Father, may you continue to do your work here in our church. May it be for your glory and your glory alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.